only in COVID will you see a mass disrupt the mic. Uh, today's scripture passage comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 46. Luke 22, 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Yeah. I feel bad for Pastor Charles. Uh, with his mask getting all stuck, and I admittedly chuckled a little bit. And then as I tried to take my mask off, it got tangled too, so the Lord humbles. So uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Good Friday service. Let's now bow our heads, asking for the Lord's blessing as we hear his word. Father, we ask that you would give us grace and mercy, for we are in desperate need of it constantly. But Lord, especially this evening, as we contemplate the significance of what this night means to your people, we pray especially now that you would visit us with your kindness, with your mercy, with your grace. And may it fill us with such hope, with such conviction, and with such joy in the midst of so much sorrow. Oh God, would you hear us and minister us to us now? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So back in February of last year, February 2020, there was a video that circulated on social media that went viral. Chances are you've seen it. It's a video in San Francisco, set in San Francisco, of an elderly Chinese man being brutally assaulted and attacked and robbed by a person stealing his cans that he was collecting for recycling. The person who did this attack, surprisingly, an African-American gentleman. It's one of the most difficult videos to watch because here you see a poor elderly man who is so filled with hopelessness that he starts crying. He literally starts crying. And the crowd that have gathered to witness, to watch all this transpire are either doing nothing or worse. They're laughing at this poor man's plight. I imagine that if you had the misfortune of seeing this video like I did, you felt the series of emotions that I did. Fury, frustrated, maybe even fear. Because for anyone to get their jollies, to get their joys out of the misery of another human being is not only disgusting, it's downright evil, which is why God gives this ominous warning to us in his word. Proverbs 24, it reads, Do not gloat when your enemy falls, when they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. The God of the Bible makes it clear. That no one is to rejoice over the sorrows of anyone else, including the sorrows of one's own enemy. And I imagine for those of you here or watching Investigating Christianity, that's something that you Christians could join that's something that you could join us Christians in giving a heartily amen to. Amen. And yet, what if I told you there is an exception to that general rule? What if I told you there is one instance 
where you can and you should rejoice at the sorrows <coughs> of another. Excuse me. And what if I further went on to tell you that's the whole point of why we gather tonight on Good Friday? Let me explain. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> when many Christians read this passage that was just read to us, many of them tend to respond with a disgusted feeling in their stomach, almost like a sick to the pit of their stomach feeling, the feeling you get when you feel incredibly disappointed, incredibly rejected, maybe even, dare I say, betrayed. The reason? Because when Christians read this passage, they come to find out that their beloved Lord Jesus didn't actually want to go through the process that resulted in our blessed salvation. Okay, And it just comes across as a shock. And to convey what I'm trying to get at, let me see if this illustration could help. Imagine a wife happily married to her husband for over 10 years, one day discovered that on the day of their wedding, the husband didn't want to go through with it. Okay, He had massively cold feet. He was a coward. He just didn't want to go through with it. He was hesitant. He was resistant. And the only reason why he went through with it is because his own father convinced him, compelled him to go through with it. Now imagine if you were that wife. Imagine this sense of hurt and rejection and betrayal to know that the man who's made you so happy actually didn't want to go through the process that resulted in your happiness. Some Christians don't have to imagine because that's exactly how they tend to feel when they read this passage, seeing their Jesus struggling, being unwilling, unsure to go through the means of our blessed, happy salvation? Well, if that is you tonight, let me tell you right now, you're completely getting it wrong. And that is not how you should be feeling because that is not how you should be interpreting Jesus' sorrowful prayer of being released from the obligations to the cross. No, quite the opposite. Jesus is trying to help us understand that through his sorrows, we should feel a sense of rejoicing, not a sense of rejection. And tonight, I want to give you three reasons why that is the case. I want to talk about the reasons why you should rejoice over the sorrows of Christ. And they are the following three reasons. Number one, it conveys Jesus' solidarity with us. Number two, it conveys Jesus' love for the Father. And finally, it conveys the depths of Jesus' sorrow. The reasons why you should rejoice over the sorrows of Jesus is because it conveys his solidarity with us, it conveys his love for the Father, and it conveys the depths of his sorrow. Let's begin with the first point. It conveys the solidarity <coughs> of Jesus. Let's read the middle of our passage, skipping down to the middle of verse 41 where we read the following. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became, <coughs> excuse me, like great drops of blood, <coughs> falling down to the ground. Okay, pause it right there. Come on back, <laughs> excuse me. A little itchiness in my throat the allergies are getting to me now here we just read a portrayal of jesus that is so incongruent to the other portrayals we read about in the gospels because when we read other descriptions of christ in matthew mark luke and john words like courageous controlled you know compelling comes across the pages but when you read this particular description of jesus where you see him struggling where you see him overwhelmed when you see him feeble and weak it's almost as if we're reading about a completely different person. I mean, just go back to what it says in 44. He was so stressed, he was so overwhelmed that he was sweating drops of blood. And when you read that, a part of us can't help but to think, that can't be right. 
this can't be the same person that I've read about before or grew up listening to Sunday school stories about. And the reason why you feel that way is because this image of Jesus does not fit the expectations that you would have of a person who happens to be God in the flesh. And yet that is precisely the point. You see, so often when many Christians think about the kind of person that Jesus is, we tend to overemphasize his divinity and we tend to de-emphasize or completely ignore the fact that he was also a human being, his humanity. Now, of course, this is not the time to talk about that mysterious doctrine known as the hypostatic union. You know, that Christian doctrine that says that Jesus is somehow, some way, both God, fully God and fully man. But it is the time now, Christian, to remember that though our Jesus indeed is God, he was also at this moment a true human being. He had flesh and blood, which means he had all the vulnerabilities, all the fragilities of that human body, the same fragilities, the same vulnerabilities that you have, I might add. And when you understand that, then you understand that the sorrows that Jesus is experiencing here has nothing to do with him having cold feet, has nothing to do with him being a coward, and it has everything to do with his desire to tell us that he is willing to share in our sorrows, that he has solidarity with us in our sorrows. You know, periodically, I sometimes admit to you in this pulpit that I get depressed sometimes because of the fact that I'm balding, right? And every time I see that patch of scalp getting bigger and bigger, I am reminded of my own fragility and my own vulnerability. And of course, that gets magnified with other things going wrong with my body, my cholesterol going up the roof, my joints aching, prophesying about the impending doom of arthritis, my twisted back telling me I'll never be as strong as I used to be. Over and over, my body testifies to the fact that all the things that I love about my life, my health, my youth, my time on earth, and therefore the possibilities of what I can enjoy are slowly slipping away, and there's nothing I can do about it. And so I'm filled with so much sorrow. And yet, the fact that our God chose to come into this world taking on the form, the same form that is the result of all the sorrows of man, the same flesh and blood body, tells me the kind of God that he is. He's not the God who is far from us and therefore far from our struggles and sorrows. No, he is a God who is near and he's willing to share in our sorrows and our struggles. I love this beautiful quote from pastor theologian John Stott. It's a little bit long, But I need to read all of it because it is so good. Consider what he once said, quote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back, lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death, He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. 
The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. End quote. The Christian faith is the only faith where the one and only true God is willing to come into the world and take on the forms that causes the sorrows that we all carry in our human existence. And because that is true, do you know what that means? It means I don't have to carry a front. I don't have to put up a facade that I have no issues, that I have no struggles, that I have no sorrows or weaknesses. You know, there is such an insidious belief circulating among Christians these days that says that if you want to be taken seriously as a spiritual person, especially in the eyes of God, is that you have to carry yourself so calm, so composed, so in control, so capable in the midst of such tumultuous turmoil of a world that we live in, almost as if you're God yourself. And yet the fact that the only true God himself doesn't behave that way tells us that belief is an absolute lie. And therefore... I don't have anything to feel guilty of. I have nothing to be ashamed of to sometimes, many times to confess that I am not always okay, that I am not always fine, and that is okay, and that is fine. Because my God, your God, does not hold that against you. No, if anything, it gives him the opportunity to convey that he has care, concern, and compassion for you. Consider these words from Psalm 103. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and then we die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we have never been here, but the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. You can rejoice in the sorrows of your Jesus, Christian, because his sorrows is designed to convey this message to you. I am here. I am with you. I'm in it with you because I care and because I love you. Do you see that? If you do, then you're ready to move on to the second reason why we are to rejoice in the sorrows of Christ. And this leads me to my next point. It conveys the love of the Father. Read again with me, verse 41 and 42. And he withdrew from about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now here we see clearly that Jesus is struggling. And the reason we know this is because of what he does with his body. What does he say that he did? He knelt down and then he prayed. That is the behavior of a person who is utterly desperate because here's something you need to understand. Back in the days of the Bible, people did not stand on their hands and knees. They, stand, they stood when they prayed, like what I'm doing right now. And the only instance where they would be kneeling in prayer is when they were filled with such doom and despair. Now, most decent people, I would imagine, and hopefully all of you, would respond to such a person in this doom and despair by having concern and compassion. But in this particular instance, we find that whatever concern and compassion we would have towards Jesus is absence because it's being overshadowed by another feeling. That feeling I brought up in my introduction, you know, that sickened feeling that you get when you feel disappointed and hurt, kind of betrayed and rejected. Remember how I said in my introduction that this passage can sometimes be viewed like that wife who finds out that the husband didn't want to go through with the marriage on the day of the wedding, right? That's how many people 
can read these two verses. I mean, take another quick look at it. On the surface, it does seem as if Jesus really didn't want to go through with it. He didn't want to go to the cross. And the only reason why he did is because the Father compelled him to. Now, if you're having a hard time envisioning why that's such a problem, maybe this personal illustration could help. You know, I have five kids, five kids. And one of the inevitabilities that happens is they're going to start annoying each other. They're going to get into conflict and get to the point where their relationships are starting to tatter a little bit. And of course, their mother and I see this as an opportunity to teach them how to forgive. But sometimes not all teaching opportunities go as planned because sometimes the following scenario happens. Bay child, your brother, your sister, they said they were sorry and they really mean it. Will you be willing to forgive them? And sometimes this pay child will go like this. I forgive you. What's happening? This child is, quote unquote, forgiving because they're being compelled by their daddy to do so, their father, right? And because that is so, one could make the argument that their forgiveness of their sibling is not sincere, it's not genuine, and it's certainly not motivated out of love for those siblings, right? And you could make that parallel argument about Jesus, that Jesus has no genuineness, no genuine love for us, as he's being compelled by the Father to do something that he naturally doesn't want to do. And it can make the idea that Jesus, quote-unquote, loves you so much that he was willing to die for you on the cross for your sins seem highly dubious. And instead, it seems more likely that Jesus is willing to go to the cross because, first and foremost, he loves his Father. And you know what? That's exactly right. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, we read, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, the Father, and died a criminal's death on the cross. (coughs) The Bible makes it clear. Jesus was willing to go to the cross for our sins, not because he loved us so much, but because he loved his father so much. And do you know what? I wouldn't have it any other way. Do you know why? Because you and I were wretched, wicked sinners, okay? Me, particularly, I am what I would say the chiefest of all sinners. You asked me if I've struggled, if I've constantly endured temptations of various sins, greed, lust, anger, doubt, idolatry. Yeah, I've done them all, right? And if you're telling me that the basis of why Jesus died on the cross for me is because he loves me so much, knowing that I've done and continue to do the things I do to him, really makes me insecure about the stability of my salvation. It would be like a wife right, who has a husband assuring her, I'm devoted to you, honey, I love you, even though she knows that he knows that she constantly cheats on him. Do you see? But if you tell me that my salvation is based on the foundation of the son's love for the father, which is a response of the father's perfect love for the son, a love that never changes, a love that is always pure, a love that is always faithful, the love that is always consistent, now I have confidence that my salvation is on a solid unchanging, unmovable foundation. You see? Here's something that you need to understand that the Bible says. When Jesus loves God the Father the most, that's when he loves all of us the best. Let me say that again. When Jesus loves God the Father the most, that's when he loves all of us the best. 
This is what he conveys when he says in those words, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Those words should be a massive source of encouragement, not discouragement, because it tells us the second reason we need to rejoice over the sufferings and sorrows of Jesus. Because it tells us that as great as the sorrows of Jesus were, they were no match to the great love that he had for the Father. A love that was in response to the perfect love the Father has for the Son that is always, always there. And therefore, I don't have to fear the stability of my salvation, even though I am so unfaithful, even though I still sin, even though I can be so inconsistent in my devotion to Christ. My salvation is secure. Do you see? If you do, then you can move on to the third and final reason why you need to rejoice in the sorrows of Jesus. And that leads me to my final point. It conveys the depths of Jesus. Read again with me, verse 41, but this time we'll take it down to 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know, one of the questions that you undoubtedly will ask when you read this passage is, What in the world can make Jesus, who though, yes, he is a man, is also God? And because he is God and therefore has at his disposal all the divine resources that could equip him to face anything, therefore, what could a person like that, with that kind of constitution, be filled with so much turmoil, be filled with so much trouble? Well, we don't have to wait long because he tells us the answer, why he's so disturbed. What does he say? Remove this cup from me a cup a cup is terrifying god let me ask you when was the last time you've been terrified of a cup you ever open your pantry and start screeching because you see those containers of porcelain and glass no of course not cups are not threatening in any way unless of course you're speaking of this cup that jesus is referring to a cup that is so dark a cup that is so dangerous a cup that is so disgusting that it can seemingly do the impossible. It can terrorize God himself. You see? But of course, this begs the question, what is this cup? What exactly is this cup Jesus is referring to? Well, I can think of no better answer than the one given by Pastor John MacArthur. Listen to what he once said, quote, what is this cup? It is not merely death. It is not the physical pain of the cross. It was not the scourging or the humiliation. It was not the horrible thirst, the torture of having nails driven through his body, or the disgrace of being spat upon or beaten. It was not even all those things combined. All of those were the very things Christ himself said not to fear. What Christ dreaded most about the cross, the cup from which he was asked to be delivered, if possible, was the outpouring of divine wrath he would have to endure from his holy father. In some mysterious way that our human minds can never fathom, God the Father would turn his face from Christ the Son, and Christ would bear the full brunt of the divine fury against sin, end quote. You know, for Jesus to experience the rejection of man that would manifest in him being humiliated by man, hurt by man, hated by man, honestly, not a big deal for Jesus. Nothing that would really get him that overwhelmed. But for Jesus to be rejected by the one to whom he loves the most, remember my second point, the father? 
especially when this rejection was not something he personally deserved and therefore something he did not have to go through? Well, now you're talking about rejection of a completely different scale. We're talking about cosmic rejection, okay? Rejection that no other rejection could ever compare to. And because that is true, do you know what that means? It means all the sorrows that Jesus endured, right, is a sorrow that no other human sorrow could ever match or ever exceed. Jesus endured the sorrow that goes beyond all the sorrows in the history of sorrows that has ever been experienced. And when you understand that, then you understand the third reason why we are to rejoice in the sorrows of Christ. Let me explain. When a person goes through life-shattering suffering that results in tremendous sorrow, one of the consequences of that is that they feel so alienated, they feel so alone, they feel so abandoned, and therefore so aimless. I've heard one person describe it as this. It's like they're being dragged down to the darkest, deepest parts of the sea to where no one is able to reach down and pull them back out to the surface, into the light, where there is hope, where there is joy, where there is life, okay? But here's the message of what Good Friday says. What is impossible for God, excuse me, what is impossible for man is possible for God. Think about it. If Jesus suffered the deepest, darkest sorrows of all, as if he's on the bottom of the ocean floor, if he suffered the bottom darkest, deepest sorrow of all, and if he is somehow, some way able to rise above his sorrows and make it back up to the light where there is life, that means he's in perfect position as he rises again to have you rise up with him, right? If his sorrows goes deeper than yours, which it does, and if he's able to rise again, which he did on Easter, which we'll come to in two days from now, that means he can get to you, into your sorrows. He can reach you where no one else can, and he can pull you up as he rises again, and you can experience what the Apostle Paul says when he says, I want to know the death and resurrection of my Lord and Savior. You see? This is why Jesus' suffering the deepest sorrows of all gives us hope. And therefore, God gives us permission to rejoice in the fact that our Savior suffered the darkest sorrows of all because it gives him prime position to get to you where no one else can. Do you see? Let me ask you, Christian, do you rejoice in the sorrows of your Savior because he wants you to. He wants you to rejoice in his sorrows because he's in solidarity with you in your sorrows, because he's conveying to you that his love for the Father is greater than his sorrows to ver- thereby securing your salvation. And third of all, his sorrows are so great, which means he will come to you when you feel like no one else can, and he will lift you up with him and share in the glories of his resurrection. Do you see that? If you do, then all I have to say is rejoice. 
rejoice, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about the significance of the sorrows that you had endured on this night (coughs) and how we commemorate this evening, help us to hold on to what it teaches us. Help us to learn how to rejoice in your sorrows because that is what your sorrows should always lead to. It should lead to hope. It should lead to joy. It should lead to life. And Father, so many of us have been in the pits for quite some time, and we've felt ourselves so darkened with despair and such in depths of sorrow. But Lord, would you lift up the countenance of our hearts so that we could truly experience what you intended for us to experience on this Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Would you help us to do that now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.